A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never got home, they never got home, they never got home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Hello there, you're very welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast this Monday. How are you? Uh, Owen here with Murph and Ken. I'm not sure how, how, how are you? Are you? Are you good? <laughs> I was actually looking, I was double checking something I wanted to say about the Vladimir Klitschko Tyson Fury fight, Ken. Mm. So my train of thought wandered from the very first few words. Oh, yeah. Uh, the first, the first um, lesson of live slash recorded recordings. Just actually concentrating the bit you're doing rather than getting too far ahead of yourself. Absolutely. Uh, so, hello and welcome to the Irish Times Second ca- Captain's Podcast with Owen Murph and Ken. Hi, guys. Hello there, Owen. Hello After there, a weekend that saw the sport of professional rugby in Ireland rocked to its very core. I don't know if you've heard, Ken, but there's a new superpower in town. And I, for one, welcome our Connacht overlords. Oh, yeah. Their first win in Tobin Park since 1986. Consolidating their position on top of the Pro 12 table. They've got the best young player in the country in Robbie Henshaw and the best overseas signings of the last couple of years. Signing anyway. Robbie in, Henshaw in Bundyaki. Injured for six weeks, Alan. But don't rain in the Connacht Parade, Ken, before we've even... <laughs> today's news, we have to let them reflect on the weekend first. Yeah. Those two players... Robbie Henshaw news is for digestion later in the week, after the, the thrill of victory has dissipated somewhat. Murph, what do you think of that uh, winning try? Well, yeah, it's... it's, it's insurance it's, it's, try. The, the insurance try was uh, pretty good. Um, and the Henshaw-Aki combo, even though Henshaw was playing fullback at the weekend, I think. But uh, the, the combination of two brilliant players who can, you know, get past people. It's, it's, it's weird, having watched a lot of Ireland and Leinster and Munster over the last number of weeks, that players beating other players... Uh, just through footwork, is it's it's uh, refreshing to see. Pretty amazing scenes as well at the end. I mean, the f- uh, players looked absolutely it was fairly wild celebrations and deservedly so. Bundyaki beating his chest, smacking yeah. that crest. Could be here for a while to come. Yeah, well, That's what you I, always think when someone's sla- slapping their chest in professional sports, right? Probably let's not read too much into that. But the nineteen eighty six thing is interesting as well because really what you're talking about there then is their f- this is the first win in the professional era, so it might as well be the first time that kind of have beaten a monster that be, beaten the beaten monster and beaten all of the tradition of monster that 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 that's been built on going to uh, Tolman Park and beating mm-hmm. them down there uh, it is it's a huge result and it's kind of it's strange uh, listening to John Muldoon after the game 
he's trying. John Muldoon has had this situation, you know, like a, a, a new dawn or a massive result for Connick that, you know, changes how Connick are seen. He's seen quite a few of these over the years. And I think he's tried every single way. You know, he's, he's tried to be yeah. bullish about it as in, right, well, we, but we got to build on this now. Uh, I, what I saw on Saturday was more just a, okay, uh, this, is a, this is one thing that I've really wanted to do for my entire career. But at the same time, we're top of the league, the World Cup, we have to factor that in. He's nearly trying to dampen down the enthusiasm, which is not something that Connacht have had, uh, have had to do an awful lot. Most of the time, they're trying to build up enthusiasm for Connacht as a franchise, as a team, and as a, as a, you know, a functioning uh, sports company, if you want to call it like that. Well, it was funny, because you just reminded me now that Muldoon got yellow carded with about 20 minutes to go, maybe 15, 20 minutes to go. You know in football, Ken, that they, they sometimes feel that there's a double punishment and it's maybe unfair to send a player off, player off just away a penalty. and give a penalty, right? In this case... John Giles, of course, had the idea that you take the penalty and if you miss the penalty, then the player gets sent off. <laughs> and if you score oh, the penalty, then, yeah. the, then the player stays off. How many times would guys just be casually ballooning the ball over the bar and turning, <laughs> turning with a grin to the... I suppose it depends on who gets sent off, really, doesn't it? In this case, the referee yellow-carded John Muldoon. What was Muldoon, Simon, who was yellow-carded, yep. wasn't it? Yeah, yep. uh, for... Uh, an act of foul play, sure, which prevented what I would have described as prevented a line break that may have ultimately led to a try. I don't think it was actually preventing a definite try, but the ref decides, I don't know, uh, Munster player's name has escaped me now, who was... It's Conway, Andrew try. Conway. Oh, yeah, no, Conway will definitely make it from there, even though there are two or three covering defenders. So he gave a penalty try. Hmm. A penalty try, seven points and a yellow card. At that stage, you're looking at it going, this is not good. This is not good for Connacht. And, it could and well worse end again, here. it's you know it's it's Connacht uh, maybe being given an excuse to lose the game. Yeah, uh, but they didn't take it. They managed that situation unbelievably well, and then scored that ridiculous try. Then, if you didn't see it, have a look at it online. It's well worth it. Lovely offload from Henshaw, amazing athletic finish by Bundyaki in the corner. I have to say, we didn't talk about it last week. I, the Tyson Fury Vladimir Klitschko fight. I wasn't massively energized by the build up. To be honest, which I've watched enough poor world heavyweight title fights that I didn't really feel like engaging massively in what I assumed was going to be a routine win for old Vladimir but on the boxing side of it I couldn't have been more wrong not that it was a classic or anything but I don't think there's such a thing as a classic heavyweight title fight anymore and Klitschko was awful but it was still impressive stuff massively impressive from Fury to go in really into the biggest fight of his life by an absolute mile and look as calm as he did and execute his game plan as effectively as he did Klitschko just couldn't get near him, really. He couldn't get a handle on his style. If you haven't seen Tyson Fury fight, he's got this strange, jerky kind of style. A lot of showboating, a lot of mouthing, very awkward. Despite being as big as he is, quite an awkward guy to hit cleanly, actually. And he, he definitely deserved the win. Problem is that he now has a platform to get plenty of attention for his views on life, Ken. Mm. Uh, views such as this one. I believe the end is near. The Bible tells me the end is near. The world tells me the end is near. There are only three things that need to be accomplished before the devil comes home. One of them is homosexuality being legal in countries. One of them is abortion. And the other one is paedophilia. Who would have thought in the 50s and 60s that those first two would be legalised? So, uh, so essentially, he's saying homosexuality and abortion will bring about the end of the world. And we just lump, lump those in a paedophilia, uh, according to Tyson Fury here. This is an interview he did with Oliver Holt in the Daily Mail. Mm. Uh, I know I'm finding it hard to put those views to one side when watching them compete. Yeah. Uh, he does say he gets those views from the Bible. Um, I don't know if I've read the Bible as closely as Tyson Fury has. Um, I don't know how much about abortion there is in the Bible. Uh, I'm, kind of, I'm not sure. The passages about paedophilia don't leap out in my memory 
either. Uh, there's quite a lot about homosexuality. And uh, if you were to take the Bible at face value, then I think you'd be agreeing with Tyson Fury. I mean, I don't think that he's the only uh, athlete who feels that way, the only religious person who feels that way. I mean, you can think of Manny Pacquiao. Uh, Manny Pacquiao, a celebrated boxer, I'd say agrees with Tyson Fury on a number of those points. Would he go as far as Tyson Fury when talking about an opponent? Goliath was a champion, a monster who'd never been beaten. And then this young guy, David, came forward, a child who believed in God and did it. God gave him the power. What was right will always prevail over wrong. Good will always prevail over evil. I see that in me versus Klitschko. To be honest with you, I, this is where you just know... When I listen to Tyson Fury speak, right, I'm just I'm not always sure if he fully believes what he's saying, and maybe he mm-hmm. does. In case like this, the second part of this sentiment, I just I start thinking this seems like a stream of consciousness that mightn't actually be something he w- would stand over. Uh, anyway, to be honest with you, I know Klitschko's a devil worshiper. They're involved in bigger circles and stuff like that, and they do magic tricks and whatever. You can go on YouTube and watch them playing with magic. He starts yeah. going on about how he's the good and he's going to take care of the evil and all this kind of thing. Yeah, uh, you know, again, <laughs> you see, the thing that I always think when I, when I listen to Tyson Fury, and he's obviously not a systematic thinker, as I think you were alluding to there, but I think he's, I think he may be disordered to to an extent. And I, it's something that he's said himself um, in interviews. I mean, he said, he's told interviewers, including, I think, Donald McRae. Yeah, we're going to talk to Donald that, that in a second, yeah. That he, um, he thinks, I'm, I think I'm mentally disturbed. Mm. You know, not many people will say that about themselves. Um, but I get the impression listening to him that something isn't quite kind of something is slightly out of one of the gears is out of its track. That was in an interview he did with McRae about four years ago that Donald retweeted during the week, t- tweeted again during the week, and it got quite a reaction. Actually, he he found him in a in a dark place. I think on that given mm. day, I, I, one of the it was funny because when I read that, I thought when I read Donald McRae putting that tweet up I was thinking oh yeah yeah I've, I've read I, I remember where I'm getting all this Tyson Fury information it was from that one article which well, it's Donald McRae's great, great skill as well I guess in yeah. getting that out of people I mean it's, it struck me that he uh, we're going to hear from him so why am I talking about what it struck me that he thought but it's, you know he seemed quite sympathetic towards Fury in the sense of you know I feel sorry for this guy mm. you know this guy is this guy has got some problems um, seemed to be the tone uh, of that, of that interview, you know, because he, he says, you know, starts off and, you know, it's, it's normal enough kind of stuff. And then he just starts getting, turning a little bit weird. And McRae's kind of like, uh, kind of grinning uneasily at, at certain moments. I mean, there was another interview that he'd done, I think you, your previous quotes were more recently with Oliver Holt. Yeah, yeah. In the Daily Mail. Yeah, just to be was, clear, that's a separate, yeah. Yeah, that, that, I mean, you know, it's difficult. I mean, I, I saw even today, you can see, for instance, in the Times, Matt Dickinson has, has a piece talking about how, you know, this is appalling. You know, he's a, uh, he's a, uh, uh, you know, this, we can't celebrate this man. You know, he's a British heavyweight champion, sure, but we can't possibly celebrate uh, the achievements of a man who, who says such vile things. And if you look at the comments underneath that, loads of people are saying, well, you know, he's hardly the first heavyweight boxer to, you know, have done some bad things. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, that's, yeah. Well, let's get Donald McRae on to chat about this. Donald, you have interviewed him on a number of occasions. Can I ask you, first of all, though, about Saturday night, were you as shocked as everyone else that he actually won the fight? Totally. Uh, I mean, I was asked earlier in the week, uh, what did I think? And I said, well, I'm not even too bothered about this fight because Klitschko is going to win it so easily. It's going to be a dull fight. And I'm um, actually stuck to my word in the sense that I didn't pay for it um, on Saturday night. Um, I listened to it um, on the BBC. And um, even whilst Mike Costello was sort of suggesting that uh, Tyson was going to win, I still thought the judges would go the other way. 
So I was totally shocked. And then I, I did uh, pay up and, and I watched it again yesterday. But yeah, totally unexpected. Yeah, Donald, I, I would call you crazy for doing that, but I also retrospectively paid for a, a pay-per-view event that I knew <laughs> there was a... Sad. Yeah, but I, I just realised it had become a story then. I was the same as you. I just thought Kitschko would win. Nobody would be too bothered about it. But suddenly... Uh, it has a resonance. I mean, this is, this, it's, and a lot of people, I mean, we know that the quality of heavyweight boxing, maybe as shown by the fact that Tyson Fury is now world heavyweight champion, sure. is, is nothing like what it used to be. But I, I guess it at least became a story when Fury won. Absolutely. And he is a fascinating guy. And as you mentioned earlier, I, have, I think I've interviewed him five times. And each time he's a totally new guy. You know, I never quite know what to expect with Tyson. Um, but yes, I don't think he's a fantastic fighter, but he's certainly an interesting guy. And I think it's, it's shaken up uh, sport a little bit and certainly the heavyweight division, which, let's face it, it needed to be shaken up. Did you get the sense that Klitschko... Clearly, he struggled to get a handle on Fury during the fight, and maybe even in the build-up, he just couldn't get a handle on this guy's style or his personality. Yeah, and I mean, Klitschko is particularly, you know, a methodical and intelligent man. Um, But I've never forgotten, I actually told Tyson this um, a few years ago. I was interviewing Klitschko before he was meant to fight Chisora, who was, again, a bit of a crazy guy, and he just... Uh, Klitschko said to me, I feel so uncomfortable. The tape was off at this stage. He said, I don't like fighting these guys who are crazy and you never know what they're going to do. And I sort of did mention that to, to Tyson. And Tyson said, oh, well, I've known that for a long time. He said, Klitschko likes to be in charge of things. And the way to get into his head is to do all weird antics. And certainly I think Tyson has got some intelligence and he, he pulled it off in the build-up to the fight because I think he certainly got into Vladimir Klitschko's head and, and unsettled him. The interview uh, that I wanted to talk to you about was the first one that you did with yeah. Tyson Fury four years ago and you retweeted it this week. Funny, as soon as you retweeted it, before I started reading it, I thought, oh yeah, this is where I, I remembered a lot of, uh, uh, somewhere in the back of my mind, I know a little bit about Fury and it was from this yeah. interview. Yeah. Um, you describe it, you even say this week, it was an unsettling experience. Why unsettling? Well, I mean, I spent a couple of hours with him and his wife and two little kids at home, which sounds like a lovely, idyllic domestic setting. But Tyson unleashed so many inner demons that day. And the most chilling moment for me was when he started talking about how sad and unhappy he was. And he sort of used the words, I think, commit suicide sad. And then he he looked at me just quite calmly and he just said, you know, I feel like smashing this place up. And I kind of laughed nervously, but I knew he wasn't joking. And he actually meant he was so unhappy that day that he just felt like unleashing chaos and, and just smashing up his own home. Fortunately, he, he didn't do that. But um, it's always stayed in my head, and I have subsequently talked to him about that day. And he did say I caught him on one of his dark, dark days. And he does still suffer um, a lot with, I think, um, depression. Um, but that was a huge insight for me that day I shared with him. Yeah, you actually compare him to Mike Tyson three times in that piece yeah. in the sense that he, I thought probably the most telling part was in the way he articulates darkness in a matter-of-fact manner. And of course it was a dark day. Yeah. I guess you could get, even even back in the 80s you could have got Tyson on a good day or a, or a dark day. Yeah, uh, there was one moment where he spoke about the opponent he was facing and how he was going to sort of do such damage to him. I forget the exact quote, but it sounded a Mike Tyson kind of thing to say that he was looking forward to causing pain. But Tyson Fury is not a huge puncher, 
But the darkness comes when he talks about his own desolation and his own confusion. And his wife actually said to me, you know, this is how he is. You have days like this. I think his whole family um, suffers with depression. At that stage, his dad was in jail um, for gouging a man's eye out. So Tyson comes out of a, quite a violent past. And um, for all that, there is an intelligence at work there. He's an, not an educated guy. He explained that he left school when I think he was about nine or ten. But there is definitely, you know, quite a high intelligence in Tyson Fury, which makes him a fascinating figure. Yeah, I certainly got that sense reading that piece with you. Um, I mean, I, I don't know if I, I would have got the same impression reading what he was saying to Oliver Holt a few weeks back. I don't know if you read that piece with the Daily Mail, but he's yeah. talking about, well, a number of different issues. I suppose the, the big standout was when he talked about um, you know, there, are only, there are only three things that need to be accomplished before the devil comes home. One of them is homosexuality being legal in countries. One of them is abortion, yeah. and the other is paedophilia. Yeah. When I say paedophiles can be made legal, that sounds like crazy talk, but back in the 50s and early 60s, for the first two to be made legal would have been looked on, I would have been looked on as a crazy man again yeah. what was your reaction when you read that well you know we we sort of uh, discussed his homophobia before because one of my last interviews i was deep in my book on emil griffith you guys kindly featured who was the first gay fight in the 1960s and yes then it was totally a taboo subject so what's tyson is saying you know that in the 1950s and 60s no one would have believed that homosexuality would be legal because it was banned in 49 49 states in the U.S. But he sort of just, he, he was fine with me. He said, oh, well, that's your view. Um, if you want to do your book, go, go ahead and do it. But he sort of said he follows the Bible, and, you know, the Bible teaches him this. So I think it's a sign of his, his sort of confusion, and he just shoots his mouth off without thinking sometimes. Is that so a... I wasn't too shocked when I saw that as disturbing, and, you know, I'm appealing it is what he said. Uh, so you weren't shocked, but it, uh, what's interesting now, I guess, and Oliver Holt makes this point, is that he's really got a platform now yeah. for these sort of views. Uh, up until this point, he was basically unknown outside of the UK. Now, suddenly, for for all that heavyweight boxing has fallen in stature, it's it's still a pretty big deal. So this guy is now going to have a platform to air these kind of views. I, I'm kind of hoping that some sense will come into Tyson's head. And I think the fact that on Saturday night, after he pulled off the shock... Um, he was kind of quite magnanimous and gracious towards Vladimir Klitschko. Of course, he said, I told you I was going to win. But he actually spoke quite nicely about Vlad and said, you know, he was a, a giant of a champion. So I'm hoping he's going to actually think a little bit more carefully. Um, but knowing Tyson, there will be days when he says totally crazy things and totally offensive things. But um, his uncle, Peter, who was in his corner, is actually... Um, quite a calming influence and I'm also hoping he's going to say well actually just start thinking a little bit because people are going to be noticing what she's saying as heavyweight champion yeah. but of course he will say something that will you know be totally unpalatable I'm sure within the next few weeks no probably and it's funny that we've, we've kind of conditioned ourselves to particularly given the lack of anything of interest being said by a lot of professional sports people, yeah. heavyweight boxing, but you know, boxing in general, we've maybe gotten used to outrageous characters over the years having things to say, but this, this sort of stuff is 
getting into here with homosexuality being compared to paedophilia or being brought into the same bracket. It's just so crazy. I wonder when you challenge him on something like that, does he engage with you in an intellectual debate about this or an emotional debate? No, he doesn't. Um, and as I said, over the five interviews, each time he's been totally different. The first one, he wasn't antagonistic towards me, but he was quite challenging me about, oh, well, let me just give voice to my sort of feelings of darkness. But other times he's backed off a little bit and sort of said, well, that's your viewpoint, and he's left it. So, but I do think, yeah, the danger is that with the adulation, or not the adulation, but the, the money that starts flowing in and the attention, he might just, yeah, shoot his mouth off. I think he, there are moments he also said he gets bored and he thinks, oh, well, I'm going to stir things up. And again, it goes back to his lack of education, not a lack of intelligence, but lack of education. And, um, yeah, it's uh, going to be interesting to see how he handles his status in the next few months and uh, perhaps years even. Does he enjoy unsettling people, do you think? He does. He does. Even on a one-to-one basis, when most of us, all we want to do is get through a conversation yeah. feeling all right about ourselves, he, he actually likes to make the other person feel uncomfortable? Um, yes, he does. Um, not, there's a guy like Bernard Hopkins, um, another boxer, yeah. um, who says kind of crazy things but in a different way Bernard Hopkins would like to make you feel unsettled he would hold your eye your gaze for the whole interview and he'll tap you in the chest and push you Tyson's not like that he's more sort of gentle in a way but I think he just actually talks what comes into his head the first thing and if that morning he's feeling that all homosexuals should be shot he will just say that Um, so I don't think it's out to needle the interviewer um, it's more he will just speak without engaging his brain. The, side, the other part of that interview with Holt centred around the good versus evil narrative that he was trying to build, this idea that, that Klitschko is a devil worshipper and all this kind of stuff, all these rock stars and singers, these famous people, common knowledge that they're all involved in an occult group of Satan worshippers, a man who does evil things and worships an evil one, how can he win over a man who wants to do good things and preach good stuff? Do you get the sense again that he believes that 100% or he's trying to get into the brain? And you know, there was one of the last times I interviewed him, um, I spent a long time, he was in a camp, I think he was set to fight David Hay and that fight got um, abandoned and it was sort of deep in, I think it was in Belgium actually. And in the course of the afternoon, we actually started talking about movies, box sets, because obviously fighters get bored when they're in, in a camp. And he was watching some quite good stuff on box sets which, um, you know, certainly he might now be saying that's sort of akin to devil-worshipping. So I think sometimes he thinks this is funny to say these things. He thinks it will make him well-known. And certainly, look, we're all talking about him because what, he've said, what he has said. So some of the stuff, I think it's just him thinking, oh, well, I'll stir the pot a little bit. And, of course, he's saying the world is going to end now. <laughs> maybe, maybe he's ahead of us. Maybe we are all doomed and Armageddon is coming. But that kind of stuff, I think that's just him shooting his mouth off. Well, I guess we're, we're talking about him because he won even more to the point rather than just the, the, the mad stuff that he's come out with. But can I ask you just finally, is this the end of the Klitschko era at last, do you think? Well, I saw on Twitter today that um, Vladimir Klitschko saying he cannot believe he lost. And I think he uses the word he has started to suffer. So he's obviously hurting badly. I think like all boxers, even Vlad, who's, you know, an educated, intelligent guy, he will think he can come back and win. I think they'll fight again next year, possibly at Wembley. But 
also, I think, more likely in Germany. So I think it will happen again. Um, but, yes, I think Vlad, when I watched the fight yesterday, to me, he just he looked like an old, old man. Yeah. Um, but we'll, we'll, all, we'll all be watching next time, I think, won't we? Yeah, we, we might stump up in advance next time, Donald, rather than paying <laughs> for an event afterwards. Okay, Ryan, thank you so much. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen unanswered punches. Fifteen of them really hurt. On the Irish, everyone in the house are hurting. I heard all the cheers. And he got me through that fight. Matt Carbone was giving me a nightmare. And I found it really hard in there. But anyway, listen. I'm a midway fighter, I'm a champion now, I want to defend my belt in Ireland, and I'll fight the best in the world. Congratulations, Andy. Up the Irish, give me oh. Right, left hand, oh. right hook. Oh. Oh. There's that Andy Lee right hook. There's that Jordan right hook. He caught him choking. Kenny Bale starts a fight, you know why? Too many unanswered punches. Andy Lee is a brand new WBO middleweight champion of the world. The winner by TKO victory, and now the WBO middleweight champion of the world, Irish Andy Lee. That's Donald McRae there. The book that Donald mentioned that we did an interview with him about a number of months ago. It's called The Man's World, The Double Life of Emile Griffith. It's uh, cracking, absolutely brilliant read if you want to get your hands on that one. Just reflecting on that chat there, I, I think we should be clear that you mentioned earlier, Ken, and we talked to Donald about it there, the darkness that envelops Tyson Fury in that first interview that he does with McRae. And even in that piece, McRae, um, sorry, uh, Tyson Fury's wife talks about the history of depression in, in Tyson's family. So that's one that's one part of it. And you're talking about the, whether you're sympathetic or not, to ties, or whether we should be sympathetic or not. Of course, that's that's something to be sympathetic about. But his comments in the Holt interview are a different thing entirely, as far as I can see. Whether and he fully believes is, what he's saying or not, he's still saying it. Yeah. And I, and I think you can uh, categorize again anything that he says about Klitschko, this good or evil nonsense that he's talking about. I mean, if you're talking about your opponent, you're trying to sell the fight. And uh, there's a part of me that says... Right, well, if he's saying something about his opponent, then that's, there's obviously a motivation behind that. So you can probably categorize that in a different way as well. But the other stuff, and, it, like his, and his comments about homosexuality in particular, that's what you're doing there. You know, you, there's no... You can't talk your way around that. I mean, if that's how he feels, that's how he feels. And if he's saying that and he doesn't mean it... It kind of doesn't, you know. It, it, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I don't think I, he does mean, and he's, he's saying it. There's no, I, I know what you mean. It, it would be almost stranger again to say something like that if you don't actually believe in it. Yeah. I'm going to come up with these theories and uh, don't actually believe in them. Just throw them out there to drop a couple of grenades into a, an interview. I don't, I don't think that's the case. It, do you think this is why hardly anyone seems to be getting too worked up about the fact that the world heavyweight champion is an Irishman? Is he? Well, he says he is. He says, all my people are from Ireland. I was born in Manchester, but I am Irish. He says he gave up the British and Commonwealth titles at one point in his career to have a shot at the Irish heavyweight title, which he won from Martin Rogan. Represented Ireland at amateur level a couple of times. His parents were born in Ireland. Hmm. 
and yet we don't, nobody seems to be, res- oh, sorry, I shouldn't say nobody, but it, it's not as though we're waking up on this Monday morning and everyone's talking about the fact that, uh, you know, talking about an Irish heavyweight champion. Well, I actually was unaware of his Irish link before you brought it to my attention. Which maybe is m- more indicative then of it rather being some sort of a... I don't think he makes a particularly big deal out of it, does he? I mean, mentioned what, it in the ring. He even mentioned his Irish fans in the ring. He has a well, he has a shamrock, which I think is actually a four-leaf clover on the back of his um, on his gown. Why am I saying gown? <laughs> Robe. Robe. <laughs> his flowing <laughs> gown. That he wears. <laughs> oh, nice. Um, yeah, it might. I, I, it I might. Be, it might be more indicative of the loss of, in stature of heavyweight fighting over the years, as opposed to people in Ireland engaging with his views too much more maybe most people just haven't even heard those views because they don't really follow heavyweight I think boxing. so I think that's probably there's that's still a lot of people well, a lot of people are watching a lot of people are shelling out the 22 quid at the time as opposed to afterwards like myself and well Donald. you know if, if you're saying that people wouldn't have uh, engaged you know with a world heavyweight title bout uh, you know you're, well you're finding out now if, if you're only hearing about this guy this morning or Sunday morning uh, you woke up and this guy was the world heavyweight champion of the world well you know we're telling him we're telling you about him now. Mm. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm not going to be claiming this guy. And I don't know why any other Irish person would want to claim him. You mean because of those views? Yeah, I mean, I'd, again, it, it gets back to the central thing we were talking about in the football show earlier about Jamie Vardy. Where do you separate a person's actions off the field or outside the ring and, and what he does inside the ring and his reputation as a sports, uh, a sports man or woman? <laughs> You know, yeah. like uh, in a situation like this where we have the choice to claim this guy because he was born and reared in Manchester, he's being proclaimed as a British heavyweight champion of the world. I mean, the Irish thing is might be a little bit of an afterthought. He's mentioning the Irish fans. It's always been profitable in boxing to keep an eye on uh, your Irish American possible Irish American uh, fan base that you can you can grab on the back of beating Vladimir Klitschko. I mean, that's just good business to mention the fact that you're a fighting Irishman. I mean, I, I, it, it doesn't get away from the fact that he's born and reared in the UK. He's a UK fighter. And if we want to claim him, fine. But I'm saying I've no interest in claiming him. The face on Vladimir Klitschko after... So if you didn't see it, the interviews start up after after Tyson Fury is won. He does the interviews, answers the questions, is is quite emotional in a lot of ways. Talks a lot about religion and talks a lot about God. Uh, and it's, it's his right to do so. Uh, mentions... Jesus uh, quite a few times during the course of course of that interview. Then the interview kind of wraps up, and it's as though he's about to. It's supposed the interviewer is supposed to then go and talk to Vladimir Klitschko. I think at that point, rather than that happening, what we get is a uh, is Tyson Fury grabbing the microphone, turning around to Vladimir Klitschko and saying some nice things to him. In fairness, but you can kind of see Klitschko in the background uh, uh, as this interview is going on, thinking, "Oh, I just want to get out of here." Uh, and at that point, the uh, Fury starts serenading his wife. Mm. With uh, an Aerosmith song, can one of your favorites Aeros- Aerosmith songs? I don't want to miss a thing. Uh, well, everybody from the Aerosmith likes that song. To be fair, the, and the face on Vladimir Klitschko <laughs> as this is going on, he's standing <laughs> beside him when it starts. He's just, oh, I really need to get out of this ring at this. Should have won the fight, Vlad. That's the only way to do it. If you didn't want that to happen, you should have uh, put up a better performance in the in the ring. You know, sometimes that's just going to happen. Let's talk Connacht, Simon. Impressed by them on Saturday. Yeah, really impressed. Really enjoyed the game. It possibly shouldn't have been an amazing game. Not amazing weather. Small attendance there. You know, it's November. It's not the most vital game in the world. And Connacht just came with an incredible amount of intent. I think for the first time ever, we can say they're the best province in Ireland. 
and we can also probably say they're the most stylish team in Ireland at the moment. Jerry Thornley has popped into the studio. Jerry, you've been covering rugby in Ireland for quite a while now. I've, I've always got the impression you've got a bit of a soft spot for Connacht. Whatever gave you that idea. Um, yeah, I do remember um, it was shortly after uh, Warren Gatlin got sacked and I was fairly defensive towards him. Then shortly after Munster, or, sorry, Connacht were nearly got rid of and I defended them and I was defending the club game a lot of the time and I was in the sports ground one day and, and I'd love to know who the supporter was, Connor supporter. He came up to me and said, uh, fair play to you, Thornley. The IL, Warren Gatland and Connacht, you're the patron saint of lost causes. So I suppose there's an <laughs> element of line, yeah. isn't it? Um, I suppose an element of supporting the, the underdog. I always thought that Connacht got a really raw deal from the rest of the three provinces, from the union. They were cut out of the... They, they, they were treated like second-class citizens, have been historically. And I remember once Matt Williams used the phrase institutionalised racism towards them. Now that sounds very, very harsh because it's a hard word, racist, but there is certainly an institutionalised bias against Connacht within the system, which only in recent years, for some reason, the RFU have backed down and have actually started to give them some serious funding. And we've seen that in the signing of Bundyaki, one of the most ambitious signings Connacht have made and what Pat Lam has done there. And um, I just think Irish rugby is all the healthier when you've got four strong provinces and one of them's not being treated like a second class system or even um, a provincial development squad or whatever they were calling them for a while that they're actually competing on a fairly equal footing and it's uh, it's been it's almost been the saving of this Pro 12 season so far. You mentioned Bundyaki there Jerry, and what I liked about the try was his finish and how it was conceived by Robbie Henshaw mm. so you've kind of got this brilliant young Irish player, best player who's emerged for the international team for the last good few years, really. And then Bunyaki, the, the, it's what you need working in unison. We've talked quite a lot about provincial setups and how you do need those overseas players, certainly as long as they have the right commitment. And, okay, banging the chest and hitting the crest and all that kind of thing. It's professional sport. It doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean a huge amount, but it certainly looks as though they're all working in unison pretty well. Yeah, and that they've already bought into the whole kind of emblem. I, would, I, would, I thought it was interesting the way he did bang the crest. I think that he understood the historical significance of that try and winning that match. You know, They tried to deflect attention from it all week. I was down there in their media day last Thursday speaking with Pat Lamb and with um, John Muldoon and with Kieran Marmion and, they were try- and with Bondiaki and they were trying to really play down this historic, just treat it as another game. But they weren't kidding anybody they knew the historical significance of this match it's one and they also were very conscious zone of the fact that they were leading a pro 12 table during the world cup they knew full well that this could be a false reading they that in a sense the season was only just starting properly after the world cup and they're only really where they should have been to take avail of everybody else's absentees to go and win in munster who are second in the table and open up a four-point gap at the top is the biggest statement of intent I think they've ever made in this league's history. And that's how significant a try that was. And you're right for signalling how much Robbie Henshaw, a great Irish talent, contributed to it. But it started with the scrum inside their own half when they were one point ahead. Now, most away teams in Thoman Park, not just Connacht, maybe it says something about Munster now as well and how Thoman Park has lost some of its intimidating factor over the years. But Connacht ran a ball and went wide as far as their winner, Matt Healy, who chipped and regathered. They could have kicked for territory with a one-point lead. They didn't. And then they went through about eight phases before Marm- before Henshaw did his thing with Bundyaki. And, you know, Marmion was a very important element of all this. I thought he was really slick. And there's a guy who's re-signed for two years. So amid all the, the gnashing of teeth over Robbie Henshaw probably leaving, here's a good young player who's staying. Um, when he could have been wanted by other problems, I'm sure. And then you have, like, you're, they're missing key overseas players in both Jake Heenan and the other open side there, um, and um, Tom McCartney, the hooker. The, the key 
key overseas players and stepping into their place were like 22 and 21 year old products of the Connacht Academy Shane Delahunt James Connolly was magnificent the first half um, so and they're doing it by playing rugby and they're trusting their skills base and apparently there's been a greater emphasis on skills in training with Dave Ellis this season than they've ever had before finishing up 30-40 minutes with skills at the end of every session and here they were going down to Munster and beating Munster in Thoman Park playing rugby I mean I think it was a real statement It strikes me that it, what they're going through is a little bit like what Ireland did in the 2000s where they have to put as much separation as they can between kind of the embarrassing past in terms of win-loss records and, and those you know so many years going without beating uh, an Irish, another Irish province away from home do you think records are important when you're coming from a low base like Connacht were over sort of the course of their history, really. Yeah. I in, think, the, in the way it was for Ireland. Yeah, big time. For example, like, how much did the 2000s, how much were the 2000s infused by what Brian O'Driscoll and that Irish team did in Paris in 2000? It, when you have a long, long losing sequence like Arn had in Paris, I think it's back to 1972 or whatever it was, it's a, it becomes a monkey around a team's back. There's an, almost a, an element of an inferiority complex that comes with that when you get long losing sequences against one team and that somehow they're, you're always going to be second fiddle to Munster. I think they've now won away in the Liberty Stadium for the first time ever and they've won in Thoman Park for the first time since 1986 and we're still not in December. Like, it must be a source of real belief throughout the organisation that here, these, this going into train and trying to train better every day and reviewing every single training session to make them train better in the afternoon or the next day, it sounds almost too demanding. But when you're getting results on the pitch, and, you're, and apparently they're even throwing in extra skills work on their own individually after the sessions or in the afternoons or whatever, and they're reaping the rewards of this in terms of results. So I think, yes, now they know this this can take us very far. Um, you can you can get a bit too carried away. In a sense, I think they're they're nine points clear of Ulster in seventh place, which is probably their most relevant statistic this Monday morning. Even though the table makes really pretty reading for them, I mean, ultimately, for them to finish in the top six and qualify automatically is a really successful season. For them to get in the top four playoffs or anything better is real bonus territory, or win a Challenge Cup or anything like that. Uh, yeah, I don't think you were sure about Pat Lamb, Simon, originally, were you? Well, I suppose at the time there was a lot of debate that a, an Irish person should maybe get the job, that Eddie O'Sullivan didn't get a cut at it, that Pat Lamb hadn't done particularly well in New Zealand. It was with Auckland. Auckland. Right? Yeah. yeah. And they're, well, they kind of still are the worst province in New Zealand, but at the time maybe it was pinned a bit more on Pat Lamb. An absolutely brilliant player with Northampton, and he seems to have a really well-rounded personality. Um, but yeah, he's convinced everybody. I wasn't convinced at the start, but I think he's convinced everybody. And he's shown there's room for personality. I mean, getting Bundy Aki over was partially putting, you know, their finances together and getting things sorted off the field, but also just his links to New Zealand mm. and him convincing people that Connacht's a project worth getting involved in. Yeah, and they're making good signings from New Zealand through him, through his name. He has an infectious enthusiasm and a passion for the game that, you know, I think suits the Connacht mentality. He's Samoan, you know, Samoan competing in Polynesian Island against the big brothers next door, against New Zealand, Australia and so forth. And it's a bit like that with Connacht. So I think he's a good fit for them in that sense. He's brought in good coaches. He trusts other coaches around him. Um, and his, his first in apparently last out at night. He, he might, when he speaks about the, the different counties in Ireland and spreading the gospel around the province and what Connacht can achieve you don't you think this guy is ridiculous, he's too much of a dreamer. But look at them this morning, they're top of the table. So everybody's buying into his methods. As you say, he's got a, a very good name in New Zealand rugby, so he's making good signings. I think there's another factor in all this as well. And 
we should therefore also, by extension, cut Anthony Foley and Leo Cullen and Les Kiss some slack. Les Kiss is barely in the job a couple of weeks. Leo's in his first season. Anthony Foley's only in his second season. Incredible to think that Pat Lamb, in his third season, at the start of his third season, is the longest-serving provincial head coach in Ireland. Mm. And maybe that's got something to do with them being top of the table as well. Because it does take... You've got to give coaches time for their methods to, be, to come to fruition. And as he said last week, for him to get to know players and players just to get to know on a very... On a very human level, you talk about the human being that is Pat Lamb. He is first and foremost, it seems to me, very much a human being and a coach second. Robbie Henshaw, he's out for six weeks now. It's news in today with a broken bone in his hand, but uh, that might give him time to tie up his future and think about what he wants to do. You said he's going to be leaving Connacht. If you take take away what's best for Irish rugby, what's best for each province, and you're just thinking from Robbie Henshaw's point of view, can you construct any argument in your own mind that would say, actually, I'd be best served by playing for Connacht for the next two or three seasons? Well, of course. He's a product of the Connacht School's rugby system and the Connacht Academy. He's a huge hero to the local support base, um, to young Connacht fans who identify with him first and foremost. He's the hero. And it would be a real blow for Connacht to lose him to a rival province. Um, it would say it, it speaks of his ambition, what he wants as a player, and you, you can't really dispute that. It's a short career. They're not particularly financially well rewarded for what they do compared to soccer players and you think what championship footballers earn compared to international rugby players and what they put themselves through. And if he wants to go, I would think there is an argument for him to stay. I would much prefer him to see him stay. He's a, a son of Connacht. There's plenty of time for him to move on. Yeah, he's still at the start of his career. Is there any chance he can look at it and think, well, it's different from how it was three years ago. If I go to Leinster... Um, we're not going to win a hiding we may not win uh, or be competing at the very top in Europe for a couple of years does it suddenly start looking more attractive that you can drive something in Connacht when you're you're not actually joining say the Leinster of uh, a hiding almost an assumption that we'll be in a hiding cup semi-final every year yeah nothing like it you know you're joining a a Leinster organisation that for whom are now coming to terms with the post-golden years and I think that's something as well that Simon was touching on earlier in conversation that you were talking about the Connacht getting rid of the baggage of history, there's also a sense of a real, there's still a hunger in Connacht rugby. That there is not, just there can't be in Munster and Leinster, certainly, and even to a degree Ulster, they are more sated. They've won Heineken Cups, all of them. They've been, you know, they they brought armies abroad in huge numbers. And, and Connacht have been missing out of that and looking on enviously, and now they're getting a whiff of it, and they really want it. There's, they're the, mo- they're the most hunger in any of the four provinces. They're, li- they're like Argentina in 99. Yes. Sorry to re- refer to international rugby again, but you know, there's a cause beyond just performing on the field and trying to prove something to your coach. They're, you're kind of fighting for something beyond yourself and your team. Yeah, and when you when you think back on Mike McCarthy leaving kind of, what was it, three seasons ago, four seasons ago to go to Leinster. Leinster were at their zenith under Joe. They were a European force. They were a European superpower. They ain't no European superpower at the moment, this season, that's for sure. And I accept your point it would be, there would appear to be reasons for uh, Robbie Henshaw to have a rethink, but I'm afraid that I think he's already made his the, mind the up. The thing is, in New Zealand and Australia, there's no sense that one province should always be on top or, or two provinces. And even Australia, when they form these new provinces in Melbourne and Perth, immediately get Gitto or these other stars, mm. Matt O'Connor, or sorry, not uh, Matt O'Connor, the, uh, James O'Connor, James O'Connor. Uh, going down there. Now, they pay big money to get them there, but immediately they're as strong or potentially as strong as the Brumbies or Queensland mm. Reds and the old established provinces. So, And the Brumbies were once the, latest, the last ones in. They were the weakest link as well, and they did the same with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. so you get a good coach, you get something going, then the Connacht should provide three or four players to the Irish team going forward in the next 10 years. And there's an argument that they should pay Henshaw even more than he would <laughs> get in, in Leinster or Munster or England or France 
and because it sets such a precedent. If, if Henshaw stays, then a whole load of other things fall into place. I would imagine, though, that it won't really have anything to do with money. I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying that whatever Leinster offer him financially, Connacht are allowed to offer him the same package. In other words, it's an international contract and it would be for the same money. It would not be a money... But, but will there decision. not be corporate tie-ins that we don't particularly get to hear about with yes. sponsors? Yes, yes. There shouldn't be, but there could be. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It should be the same financial package. I know that much, but yeah, you're right. It might not entirely be. And I, but you take so take my point that ultimately it's his decision, and it looks as if he wants to make that move, doesn't it? And you can't really stand in the way of it or object. Oh, absolutely not. I'm taking it from I'm taking it from Connacht's point of view. Yeah. From his point of view, though, yeah. so I'm just. Am I getting carried away by the fact that Connacht? One in Munster at the weekend. Is there a possibility? Yeah, two, we are taking a little snapshot in time in, here. In, but in but if you time, look at the trajectory as well, yeah, in two years' time, Connacht is there a possibility that Connacht might be nearly on an even keel with Leinster? Do you think within a couple of years, on well, a consistent basis over the course of uh, Rabo or of a Guinness uh, season and a Champions Cup season, that they might be? I think, I think population is always going to hold them Absolutely. back. Um, Socioeconomic factors and the history. I mean, we're talking about them overcoming it, but. I mean, rugby was absolutely tiny. Murph will tell us better, but rugby's been absolutely tiny uh, up until quite recently. Um, and you still look, the peak of the athletes go to Mayo football, go to Galway hurling, Galway football. Connor rugby punches way, off, way above its weight, both on the pitch and off the pitch, even in terms of its fan base. To get the crowds it does per head of population in Galway is way, way higher than what Leinster get in Dublin. But ultimately, Leinster will always have this conveyor belt of talent from the elite schools. They will always have a higher turnover. They will always have more money through financial backing, through, you know, they've a, they've a fan base of 12,000 season ticket holders alone, which is more than double Connacht's fan base. They're just, there are always going to be, the numbers are always going to stack up in Leinster's favour. That's just the nature of it. The other story I wanted to run by you today, Jerry, was that Midi Olympique in France are reporting that Ron O'Gara was offered uh, the chance to replace Les Kiss as Ireland's defence coach has turned that offer down. Now, he already, it's a non-story in the sense that he already killed it last week and his mm-hmm. examiner called him yep. and said, I'm a lot more likely to move within France and back to Ireland. There was some rubbish report around this week of me going back as the Ireland defence coach, which contains about 0.00% truth in it. So the question there is whether or not Midi Olympic are correct that he actually was offered it or not. The way he's spoken, he's already t- he already turned down the fictional offer anyway. Are you at all surprised that he seems so intent on furthering his career in France rather than getting back into Irish rugby at this point? Not hugely. Um, he's a very smart, intelligent boy, Ron Nogara, and he knows that the coaching game is a marathon, not a sprint. Um, you look at somebody like John O'Gibbs over there now as assistant Clermont O'Byrne, where he had before been assistant in Leinster and has got a great CV. You start off as, a, as a, an assistant and you do... You, um, you apply your trade as an assistant for several years and you maybe do a few different roles and it adds to your time on the coaching treadmill. You then you step up to being a head coach. If it, if it all comes very quickly, you can fall off very quickly. And um, I think Roland realises it's a marathon. He's exactly into French way of life. He's probably learning more than he would be in sense if he stayed at home. Um, it's good that he's wanted so much. Um, it's interesting that he's wanted so much and I'm sorry he's not coming home in some respects because as those quotes show you he's by some distance still remains the most coachable Irish rugby player ex-rugby player or coach out there but um, I think it's good for CV that if he, if he learns more about his tools of his trade in French club yeah, rugby I think you're spot on that players need to jump sometimes to take the money say Henshaw this might be his only opportunity so maybe he has to go if there's more money elsewhere but uh, with coaches particularly with the international game I think if you look at Kidney and you look at O'Sullivan 
it hasn't been particularly kind to them. And if it goes wrong at international level, and and you assume maybe Matt Lancaster, Williams, Lancaster could be in trouble. Yeah, Matt Williams, Frank Haddon, yeah. there's so many of them. Whereas you can half you fail at a club and, and move on. Yeah. yeah. Whereas the international game, maybe because there's so much more coverage, Six Nations so high profile that you're damaged more when it goes bad. Yes, definitely. Yeah, as you say, like Stuart Lancaster, it's going to be very interesting to see how his coaching career is resurrected. But um, I think the longer that Ronan goes on doing this, and, and it, that's intriguing possibility he mentions going somewhere else in France, maybe as an attack coach. And by goodness, then he really would have something on the CV. And of course, we all know that one day maybe he might well pitch up in Munster, but what's the rush? Yep, Jerry, brilliant stuff. Thank you. Cheers. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second cap, first cap, and whatever. Richie Sadler's here. Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? <laughs> no, really. You know, what happened? When John was young, everyone in the city knew about it, but no one had seen it. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. All right, that's Connick's win taken care of. We've talked about Tyson Fury in the boxing. We've got a football podcast out now. What we haven't mentioned yet, Murph, mm. and I uh, haven't uh, probably mentioned over the last couple of weeks, is the Provincial Football Championship, and in particular, the Ulster Club Final, which you attended yesterday in Armagh. Well, it's my second one in the week, on. I was at the uh, Connacht Club Final last uh, last Sunday uh, in Tume Stadium uh, between Castlebar and Curfin. Heard a man... Uh, uh, saying to a friend of his as another gentleman walked past us oh there's your man that was hypnotised on the late late and no other information was proffered that's all I heard that was the only part of the uh, conversation that I heard (laughs) I just thought this that is without doubt one of the standout quotes of 2015 for me I mean we're in the mood for uh, looking back over uh, year long highlights I think at this stage but uh, Cross McLean Cross McLean against Scottsdale yesterday uh, the coldest sporting event that I've ever attended. Uh, at halftime, uh, I was there with uh, Mark Horgan. Mark goes and gets uh, a cup of tea for the two of us. And I'm standing up and I'm kind of doing a little sort of a, like just hopping from toe to toe trying to keep myself warm. And I turn around and literally everyone in the stand in our mat, it's, it was kind of like a an like impromptu Pozna. <laughs> everyone was facing out into the uh, onto the onto the pitch, but other than that, everyone was but just a lot slower. So there was not no real energy to it. Just everyone's very slowly bobbing up and down, sort of on the spot, uh, personalized calisthenics. It was really it was it was quite quite extraordinary. Uh, but cross were excellent. You must have been delighted when it went to extra time. Oh, that everyone in the instead had the exact same reaction. Oh, God. Well, you were there, presumably supporting our pal Oshie McConville. Oshie McConville, yeah, who's uh, joint manager of Cross McGann, who would have been very happy at halftime because Cross were playing brilliant football. I actually hadn't seen Cross McGann playing live uh, in a number of years, and yeah, I mean their style of football is is it's still brilliant to watch. Still, thirty forty yard foot passing is the absolute key around their entire game plan, and Aaron Kernan is. He's just so good. He's uh, like Stephen Kernan, Tony Kernan are brilliant footballers, but Aaron Kernan is just like next level. He was absolutely brilliant. Composure on the ball in this complete monsoon. Like the conditions were like, if you'd asked me to go and fetch a cup of tea, that would have been a trying physical uh, experience for me. And the the both teams actually managed to 
provide us with a, a very good game. So went to extra time, uh, multiple sendings off, uh, a goal scored by the woman sitting beside me, her boyfriend, <laughs> uh, got the key goal. For, Did you know this in, in, in advance or was it from oh, the celebration? We, we sat down and we immediately said, who... Uh, you know, kind of who are you supporting today? And they were like, "Oh, Cross McLean." And we're like, "Is there someone in particular we need to make sure we don't abuse?" Uh, and then the, there were actually two two girls going out with two two brothers. So uh, great scene. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the Nemo Rangers were beaten in a major shock goal in the last second by Clonmel for a Tipperary club's first ever victory in the uh, club finals. It it looks very much like Castlebar and Cross McLean are the two best teams left in the tour- left in the competition. They're playing that semi-final is going to be middle of February. I would say that Castlebar are the better team that I've seen over the last eight days. Uh, but the one thing that struck me about Cross McLean yesterday is that in these horrific, horrible weather conditions, I was kind of watching the two warm-ups and Scottsdale were like, "I can't believe it. This is the biggest game we've played in nearly you know in twenty-five years, thirty years nearly, and you know we have to struggle through all this." And Cross McLean are like. We've been here a million times before. We play this brilliant brand of football, but we're forced by dint of the competition we play in to play in these conditions all the time. And it just kind of seemed to the manner born. So no matter what February throws up, you'd still be inclined to think Cross will be able to handle it. I was watching it on TV, and the one thing that struck me, a couple of things struck me, Murph, you mentioned the red cards. Not the brightest pieces of play by either man who was sent off, one no. for Cross McLean and one for Scottsdale. And a sort of backhand punch slash elbow in the head. So Cross McLean, see red, Ken. And then a raking, you know the third, you know when you, a guy goes past a defender and the defender tr- leaves a little leg out there to try to stop any momentum. This is what the Scott Sam player did, but the leg, there was a bit of a scything studs down the leg action to oh. what he did. So he was sent off and uh, the Scott And then Sam the last minute, there was two, two others sent off really stupidly. Yeah. But, but uh, no, but the big thing that struck me was just the insane commitment of these players, you see it anyway. Cross McLean don't have a monopoly on commitment to the cause. But when it was really getting into it towards the end of normal time and into injury time, at one stage, a defender was in a 50-50, probably a 40-60, and just managed to nudge the ball out of a, an attacker's hands. I can't remember the name of this player. Then suddenly he's, he's in a situation where it's about a 20-80. He's miles away from where the ball is. And the player coming at him is coming at way more speed. Somehow he, he manages to, you know, Simon Hicks' favourite rugby player, of course, Brian Lima, the chiropractor. Yeah, of course, yeah. He kind of throws himself into this tackle as though he were the chiropractor. No arms. It was like a rugby tackle, but even in a rugby tackle, they'd be saying, you've got you to gotta move, you got to get your hands around him a little bit there. I remember the incident, right? Because <laughs> yeah. I turned to Mark and I, 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 what I actually said to him was, that man just turned his body into a projectile <laughs> to stop the the the, the ball from uh, being advanced up the field. He literally, yeah, as you say, no limbs or anything. He just kind of turned himself into like a six foot long plank of wood <laughs> to stop. <laughs> he the didn't advance win it. He just, ball. yeah, he just took himself and, funny enough, two of their players out of it in that yeah. same moment, and then the ball bobbles somewhere else. Actually, and of course, a crossbow land guy picks up the second. Yeah, ball. and uh, to be honest, uh, there's there's probably nothing uh, harder to visualize. Uh, for a listener, then you know, just these random incidents in the middle of a football game. Mm. But it just so happened that in the first half, Stephen Kernan and Darren Hughes, and Darren Hughes is like this huge physical specimen, uh, and Scott Stanley's best player, one of Monaghan's best players. The ball is like, uh, kind of ricochets out from a, a like a sort of a scrum of players, and both Stephen Kernan, I think, I think it was Stephen Kernan and Hughes are twenty yards away from the ball, so everyone in the stand can see that the two of them are not going to pull out you know so the two that were running out and it's like you know like a cartoon car crash mm. you know where the the two things are coming at the exact end and there's there's no other way 
it's going to be other than the two of them inflicting huge amounts of pain to each other. And the two of them pick up speed just <laughs> just as they meet each other. And there's just like this like ridiculous bang that this sound that comes out of the two of them. And the two of them just like get up and walk away. Yeah. Absolutely no problems. I mean, you're you're looking at this going. It's almost December, lads. This is ridiculous. The Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast is out now. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I want to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. What are you doing down here? You're showing me, man. Well, we talk a little bit about Jamie Vardy, Owen, as we as you mentioned earlier, and his scoring record, and uh, whether he's kind of gotten off a little bit lightly for the incident that was widely reported back in August when he racially abused um, a man in a casino. Maybe not as widely reported as we thought it was. No. And so we'll talk to Jonathan Liu about that, uh, of the Daily Telegraph. We're also going to talk to Graham Hunter about Pep Guardiola. Um, I mean, <laughs> the reports one day are he's going to join, he's, he's agreed to join Man City. Then the next day it's, oh, he'd rather join Man United. Will he join one of these clubs? Or will he just annoy both of them to the point that neither of them want him anymore? Mm-hmm. Mm, I mean, I, I'm not sure how it's going to play out. Okay, you're getting to the time of year when the people closest to you ask, what do you want for Christmas this year? In response, you mutter, ah, I don't know, really, whatever you think, you'll think of something. To which they say, you've got to be more specific. You're really difficult to buy for. No, I'm not, you reply. I'm not difficult. Just something to do with sport. That is a sentence, Murph. One should never utter. It's a dangerous wish. You could end up with anything. A copy of Best of Friends, the official story of Gary Lineker and Willie Thorne. Mm. A Liverpool FC salt and pepper set could be yours, even though you're a Man United fan. I don't know, a Sebastian Coe bobblehead. Anything could happen. Listen, what you need to do is just... Specific. Be specific. Be specific. Take doubt and worry out of the equation. Tell that person, I would like the second captain sports annual volume one, please. And when they say, cool, I'll pick you up three copies so you can share them around your mates. Where can I pick them up? Just tell them, oh, you can go online at secondcaptains.com yeah. or pop into a bookshop. Eaton's, Dubray, any of these amazing bookshops. Like P.T. Burnham, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Simple as that. You'll have your second captain's book instead of, I don't know, say an AFC Bournemouth hard hat, which I've just seen <laughs> online here. Daily Express have an article of worst Christmas presents, worst sports Christmas presents. And There's the coffin as well. You know, I, I definitely don't want to be presented with like, you know, a Galway GAA coffin. You know, just you'll, have, you'll always have that. Yeah, your you know, wife take, gives you a coffin. Yeah, take some of the cost out of... A wintry smile. <laughs> <laughs> your time's yeah. coming, babe. All right. Thanks very much, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thanks very much, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Ken. Thank you. Thanks Kira. very much for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Take care. How did you take off? What is that? It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys.